to another episode of the Agony of Defeat podcast. My name is Jonathan Weiler. I'm a professor of global studies at UNC Chapel Hill, and I teach a course on sports and globalization whenever I can. Yeah, my name is uh, Matt Andrews. I'm in the Department of History here at UNC Chapel Hill, and uh, I teach courses on uh, the intersection of sports and politics in the United States all the time, too much. I'm teaching three of them this semester. Is it okay to say I'm ready for the semester to be over, Jonathan? Yeah, you're allowed to say that, Matt. All right, I'm ready for the semester to be over. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of work. And we are super excited today to have a special guest. We've had a series now. We had Victoria Jackson a few weeks ago and then Dave Zirin. And now an old buddy of mine from grad school, Tom Schaller, who is a professor of political science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He's written several books about politics, including Whistling Past Dixie, which I will just note, uh, he was interviewed by Stephen Colbert for and Stephen Colbert's old show, um, and another book called The Stronghold. And he has a new book out uh, called Common Enemies about the racial transformation of college sports in the 1980s, focused on the Georgetown basketball team and the Miami football team. It's a fantastic book. And we're going to spend today talking to Tom about some of its many interesting elements. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, great to be here with uh, both of you. Thank you so much. So, Tom, I actually want to start with something you wrote in your preface um, when you said that writing this book, Common Enemies, changed you as a writer and also a fan. And you said, I'm just to go a little further, you said, I look at and root for different athletes, coaches, universities, and professional sports teams, and for different reasons than those I did before starting this project. And my great regret is that I arrived at this new perspective too late to enjoy in real time those legendary Georgetown and Miami teams of my youth, which first of all was just a fantastic paragraph, but I'd really love for starters for you to just talk a little bit more about that, how this work shifted your perspective in the ways you're alluding to here. Yeah, I, I, I try to be <laughs> brutally honest in that preface. I told myself that I preferred Syracuse over Georgetown because they were an upstate New York team. And there's some truth to that, I suppose. And I told myself I preferred Florida State over Miami because I got a master's degree in, in, in Tallahassee. Uh, and of course, many of the Teams at Syracuse and Florida State were led by fantastic black athletes, many of whom I uh, rooted for uh, in college and when they went along to the pros like Deion Sanders or Derek Coleman, two of my favorite college and professional athletes ever. But the fact of the matter is I found myself hating Georgetown and I found myself hating Miami. And even if some of that's a regional rivalry-based hatred, I think at some level, I like a perhaps a lot of white sports fans just didn't get Georgetown and didn't get Miami and what they were trying to do at the time. And coming out of the back end of this book, uh, I have a, a different appreciation for what their rebellions really meant and uh, what legacy they've left for college football, college basketball, and, you know, uh, intercollegiate sports and the marketing of sports and the meaning of the non-white athlete, especially the non-white amateur athlete. And uh, it's obviously too late to get in a time machine and go back and, you know, watch Ewing live or watch Michael Irvin live um, in those days, but um, better late than ever, I guess. 
But you're not saying you pulled for uh, Duke when you watched basketball and you pulled for Nebraska when you watched football. You can at least you don't have to go go that far with your admission of uh, honesty here. It sounds like dumb. That's right. There's absolutely no reason and nothing about my hatred for Duke has changed as a result of this book. I think I could write 10 books and that wouldn't change. And, you know, that's a little I, I joke a little bit about that. I mean, I, I do have some respect for for Duke and what Krzyzewski's done, but uh you know, I, I don't talk about them a lot. And, and obviously having gotten my PhD at Chapel Hill, it makes you a natural Duke hater. Um, you know, and, and there is kind of a weird distinction between, say, if you look at basketball, obviously, and that rivalry between Duke and Carolina. I mean, uh, Dean Smith was very much on the forefront of race uh, and trying to integrate the Carolina program, treating minority athletes, advocating for minority athletes, picking John Thompson to be the first black assistant coach ever on the U.S. Olympic team in 1976 at the Montreal Olympics. And Krzyzewski, I mean, you know, I don't think he's very political, but there's, you know, been hints that he's kind of a Republican. He's kind of conservative. So, you know, if you view America uh, blue, red, and you view uh, Carolina blue versus Duke blue, like I'm not saying there's a perfect parallel there, but you can sort of see how Duke can be lined up as sort of uh, as Republican red and, and Carolina blue can be lined up with uh, with uh, sort of blue America. I think that's a stretch, but there might be a little something to that. So Tom, just to go back a little bit, uh, when you, you mentioned the difficulty for you of relating to Georgetown basketball and Miami football. Um, and we're going to get into the evolution of these programs and their impact on college sports more generally. But I'm, can you just talk a little bit more about what that was for you? You know, Seth Davis has a great book about the um, now famous, of course, then famous uh, Magic Bird 79 final between Michigan State and Indiana State which is still the most, in terms of share, of course, the country's gotten bigger in terms of the total number of audience. We've had more people watch games, but as a rating share is still the highest rated college basketball game. I believe it's the highest rated basketball game pro or college to this day. That's, you know, 40 years later. And as I talk about in the book and Seth talks a little bit about in his fantastic book, you know, this is, there was clearly a racial dynamic to that, right? This is this, there were African-Americans on the Indiana state team, of course, um, but it was viewed as sort of rural white America against urban black America and the difference between Larry Bird and the sort of understated uh, middle America, Nixonian silent army figure. And then Magic Johnson, the sort of new black America coming out of the late seventies with the bell bottoms and all this other kind of cultural uh, attachments. And that, that game changed college basketball. That game changed televised college basketball. That game law helped launch ESPN and a variety of other things. And I remember that that's the first college basketball game I remember. And something that Seth points out in the book is that most Americans had heard about, but not seen Larry Bird play live until the final four. And he became this phenomenon anyway. I mean, you could see him regionally, but nationally you really couldn't see Indiana state because they were such a second tier program. And I remember that program. And I remember the early eighties uh, for me, that streak from 79, the Isaiah Thomas UNC final, 81. Then you have the Georgetown UNC final in 82. You have the miracle upset by North Carolina State in 83. And then you have Georgetown beating Houston in the final 
Houston losing twice in a row in the final 84. And then, of course, you have the, the major Villanova upset of, uh, of Georgetown in the 85. That six-year run, I sort of skip over Louisville's 80 title. It's not unimportant. That six-year run, to me, has never been equaled in college basketball. And that, for me, was from the time I was 12 until I was 18. That was my teen years. And so I fell in love with college basketball. And uh, I'll fight anybody who says that wasn't the best six years of the Final Four ever. And so for me, those were formative moments. And look at the great athletes that came out of there. I, I forget, I, I calculated it one time, but of the when the NBA did its first all 50 greatest NBA players, like Jordan, <laughs> right, Ewing, Drexler, Elijah Juan, Thomas, like something like nine, you know, like a fifth yeah, of the players yeah, played James, in one of those. James Worthy, I think, was in that. James line. Worthy, right. Yeah. Like it was just – it was a gold mine. And of course it was an era before one and done and all And college basketball has changed a lot since then. And so to me, that was just a formative era and, and, and a formative era for me, like I said, I turned 13 in 1980. So my high school years and college years were basically the 1980s. I graduated, you know, uh, college in 1989. And I, I think that was the most important decade, as I argue in the book, in the transition from the post-war era where we had overt racism in college sports in a way that we, you know, occasionally get a Don Imus whiff of today. And what we have today, which is, you know, you lose your job if you say something like Don Imus. And how did you get between era one and era two? And I basically argue that the 80s were this pivotal point. And I didn't know in real time. I just was enjoying the basketball. Uh, and Tom, it's not just in, in basketball. So you mentioned college basketball, but of course, Bird and Magic then take this, this, this racial rivalry to the NBA. It helps regenerate the NBA. Boxing is sort of re rejuvenated by the appearance of of of, of Jerry Cooney, the uh, Cooney Holmes fight in 1982. I'm really you and I are I'm 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 doing the math. We're the same age. I'm really happy to hear you say that these were the most important games because boy, one after another in the early 80s. And I'm glad you left out 1980. I went to UCLA, so Louisville defeated uh, UCLA in that game. I don't need to think we need to talk about that. But I want to get to this notion. So when I teach my, my, my race and basketball class, I have a hard time explaining this to students that there were just teams out there that were black teams. And there were teams out there that were white teams. And sometimes I'm surprised here some of the white teams were I had Jesse Washington who wrote the the, the autobiography or the biography of John Thompson come to my basketball class and he pointed to the North Carolina students said just so you all know you were the white team in 1982 you know we don't necessarily think of the Jordan team as being the white team but how do you explain that idea about how teams are racialized in the 1980s I actually think a lot of students don't get it anymore especially since now Duke is thought of by a lot of people as a black team, you know, Duke has become black America's team in, in some ways, just throwing the entire calculus off. Um, how do you explain that idea of the racialization of, 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 of teams? Well, the thing, the way you can explain it is by just looking at the roster and tallying up the share of black and white players, because, you know, many of the white teams are chock full of black players too. And so it's really about black affect, right? It's about black style. It's about a, the performative acts, aspects of it. And as I argue in, uh, I think at the end of the first chapter or the third chapter, I forget, um, the black style is not monochromatic, as I say. Like Miami style was bombastic. Miami style was braggadocio. Miami style was in your face. Whereas John Thompson was very militaristic. He kept his players on our tight lead. He didn't want his players talking to the military, to the media and stuff. And like, so... This notion that there was only one style is something that occurred to me. I sort of went into it thinking, oh, Georgetown is just like Miami. 
in some ways that's true, but in some ways Thompson's approach was very different, as I point out from, say, Jimmy Johnson's approach, which is let the players be themselves. John Thompson was like, they called him Mr. Thompson. They didn't call him Coach Thompson, right? And he very much was sensitive to the notion that we have to be role models and Black America is reflected in our behavior and you make a mistake and you're out. And uh, that kind of approach was very different from the more permissive approach that Jimmy Johnson and and, uh, and certainly Dennis Johnson took, not so much Howard Schnellenberger. And of course he left right after their first championship. So I think it's about an affect, right? It's not like Syracuse didn't have a bunch of black players playing against Georgetown in those Titanic games or St. John's too. Um, now, granted, Georgetown sometimes had an entirely black roster or maybe only one white player who maybe didn't play at all. But um, and of course, their coach was black, which was a big difference then as well. Right. I mean, that was Louis Carnesecca, Jim Beheim. Those those teams were not coached by, you know, Raleigh Massimino were not coached by a black head coach who really did not take a lot of guff from anybody. And, um, you know, so that was different. And. Um, you know, the fascinating thing about Georgetown and many of the Catholic schools, the Villanovas and the St. John's, is that, as I learned in, in researching the book, is that from the 50s and 60s and 70s, they mostly recruited at, you know, Catholic prep schools, you know, uh, the St. Francis's and, and, and uh, Catholic schools in sort of the Northeast Quarter. John Thompson came in and he changed the way recruiting in the Big East uh, developed. And uh, a lot of that, of course, was tapping into urban black athletes, uh, particularly in Washington and Baltimore, right in his backyard. So some of it is about the players, some of it is and not just about their race, but where they come from. And I think a big part for 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 uh, for Georgetown was who their coach was, and his racial identity, which is a very powerful racial identity. He really shook the foundations of the NCA, the walkouts later about NCA standards on, you know, that kind of stuff. It's fair to call it a quote unquote black program, even if Georgetown had no more, no fewer black players on its roster for the top 15 players or whatever. I just I just want to add one thing to that, Tom. I was thinking about this when I was reading your book about the the lines of authority in these programs. So you have a program run by a towering black figure, John Thompson, the Georgetown basketball program and very much seen as keeping his players in line. And I think about John Cheney, the black coach of Temple, which I think was also very much identified as a black program that, and Cheney was in some ways even more militaristic and harsh than Thompson was. And then you have these other programs. You mentioned UNLV basketball before. We can talk about the Michigan and Fab Five and Jimmy Johnson's Miami football team. Those are all permissive white coaches presiding over these black so so there's two models of authority each of which i think also contributes to the perception of a program as black and somebody like coach k in an earlier era who was seen as a disciplinarian that was never going to be coded as a black program because there were both white players and this lack of permissiveness and i mentioned permissiveness because i think this is one reason why there was such a strong and often negative white reaction to these black programs in the 1980s that if they're not under the thumb of a disciplinary coach, they you know, represent the possibility of black America running roughshod over the rest of America. So I, all of this feels to me like it's part of how people related themselves to these, to these programs. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear, um, you know, Tarkanian and uh, say Jimmy Johnson, it's not that they weren't criticized 
and it's a counterfactual, but a, a, a program run identically as their program was run, but with John Thompson or some other black coach at the helm, I think would have come under greater fire and greater criticism. In other words, yeah. there was a certain privilege there that was exercised by them. And, you know, I think the other thing is that, you know, the athletes are maybe perhaps treated a little bit different when they have a white coach or if they have a black coach. I mean, it's hard to prove that. But um, so so there's there's a clear sort of privilege aspect, I think, to having the luxury to be a little bit more permissive if you are a white coach, even if almost all of your roster is black athletes. Uh, the fascinating thing to me in, in doing the research for the book was like seeing how white the programs were were still particularly in football like i looked at the roster the starting lineup for the nebraska team in that 1984 orange bowl that miami won against a team nebraska that averaged 54 points a year that year was insane um i I think they had nine white starters on defense and two black starters or was 10 and one and then at the time I was doing the research, the most current roster that was available was the 2017 Nebraska one where I could see the race of the starters. And it was just the opposite, basically. Mm-hmm. And so programs like Oklahoma, maybe to a lesser degree, certainly Notre Dame, certainly Penn State, they still had majority white starters on both offense and defense. Even Miami's national championship team in 84, I think, had five black starters on offense. It was some of the key positions and one Latino and five you know, tight ends and offensive linemen. So it wasn't a majority lineup even for Miami's team in 1984, and it was certainly not for Nebraska. So the racial uh, composition of the lineups is, is fundamentally different. I looked at Clemson's lineup for their recent championships versus their 1980 championship, and they were about a 60% white team when they won the 1980 uh, football championship. And obviously now they're closer to 65%. Uh, African-American or or other minorities. So, um, you know, the pool of players that are recruited and put on the teams has changed themselves. Just just one more quick comment about that, Tom. It's a concept you talk about in the book, pooling players by positions, I think is the term you use. Stacking is the term, yeah. Stacking, excuse me. And so right in the 1980s, there were lots of positions. This is true of football in a way it's not true of basketball that were just considered, were not considered black positions. Um, and right. so they were only eligible to play on, in, on certain parts of the team, which as I'm saying that now, I sort of can't believe <laughs> how true that was. Uh, but, but it was one reason I think why these rosters were still as white as they were. Yeah, and I, obviously, I mean, Todd Boyd gave me a great quote for there and really made me think about something I hadn't thought about, which is that Jimmy Johnson sort of learned some of his views or developed some of his views, uh, you know, coaching under and then later against Barry Switzer and, um, you know, who had early, you know, black quarterbacks like J.C. Watts, right, on his roster and the notion that the traditionally stacked roles that were limited to white players, right, quarterback, pitcher, uh, point guard. Uh, began to change you know now you turn on the television and I don't know what the exact percentage but look at how many black NFL quarterbacks there are right it's it's right but when I was growing up in the 70s like I forget what his name was for the Pittsburgh Steelers was like it was a big deal and then Randall Cunningham comes along and it's a big deal that they have a one black you know regular starter in the NFL at quarterback now it's 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 probably a majority of quarter quarterbacks are non-white at the very least and um, you know so that had to change first, I think, at the high school and college level. Uh, in fact, it was it, oftentimes 
some young African-Americans would be quarterbacks in high school, but then they'd move them to wide receiver or cornerback in college because, you know, that was considered, you know, there was essentially a racism in the belief that you weren't, didn't have the athletic and the intellectual package to, you know, make plays and call plays. To me, thinking about sort of the, the, the racialization of positions in sports in the 1980s, I think about linemen who in some ways, offensive linemen and defensive linemen, that they remind me of each other. They, they, they sort of do the same thing, though they're doing different things. And in the 1980s, all the offensive linemen were white. They were all white. And all of the defensive linemen, almost all of them, were black. You know, and so the white guys, their job is to protect someone. And the black guys, their job is to kill someone. Their job is to kill the quarterback. And I mean, that's really changed as well. I mean, now linemen, well, they're, they're, they're all, all, all sorts, but sort of the, the, the integration or the desegregation of the offensive line is something that I see, see happening at, at this time too. And it was so interesting hearing you talk, Tom, about Nebraska, that great Nebraska team that lost to Miami. I mean, I can name three guys on that team, right? It's Fryer, Rozier, and Gill. Right. Um, the, the, the three African-American stars. I couldn't name stars. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Those were the guys. They finished like first and Fryer and Gill finished like first and fourth in the Heisman or something. It was like the highest finish of two players in the Heisman ever or something net. I'm not sure I had heard of the University of Miami until that football game, actually. I mean, I had heard of Miami. I'd heard of the Miami Dolphins. I don't think I had heard of the Hurricanes in Schnellenberger until they, they, they had that re remarkable win. Um, Tom, one of the things I think is so interesting about your book uh, is, is you explore how um, white people talk about Black teams, right? Um, yeah. And, and uh, could you talk a little bit about how, how people in the 1980s, and maybe still to this day, if you still see this, how white reporters talk about race without actually explicitly talking about race. Yeah, there's a section in the book and Michael Wilbon, who was just a young beat reporter covering Georgetown at the time. And I had a hard, I wasn't able to track him down. I tried to reach out to him several ways because he was probably the person I wanted to talk most, at least on the Georgetown side. But he was just covering it as a young guy, probably in his mid twenties at the time, if I did the math on it. Now, of course, he's a big, you know, political uh, or uh, sports celebrity. Um, he wrote a column where he called out Billy Packer for the way he described athletes as like athletic if they're African-Americans, but plucky and smart. So the, the notion was that whites didn't have the inherent natural sort of uh, gifts that blacks didn't. So they had to overcompensate by being more clever, more strategic, more shrewd in a way. And so um he actually, he and another uh, a social, black social scientist started coding the terms applied in sort of this brain-brawn dichotomy. And they found that there were more brain references to white players and more brawn style, like what an athletic play or how strong or how fast were more often applied to minority players. And then uh, intellectual compliments in the narrative uh, were more often applied, not exclusively, of course, uh, to white players. And you realize, of course, the commentariat then, you know, you didn't really have a lot of black commentators on the national programs or sideline reporters, right? This You turn on ESPN today, right? And you can watch sports talk shows and there's there's maybe fewer white people than black people on a particular panel on, on some sports debate show on ESPN or or Fox or something like that. We, have, we do have a nicely integrated media today, 
But you go back and watch these, you know, championship games, the color commentator, the play-by-play person, and if there's a sideline reporter, they're all white and they're almost all men, right? Now it's pretty commonplace to have women on the sidelines, increasingly women in the booth as well. And so I talk about how there was like a double effect. One is, you know, you have uh, the way athletes are talked about on the field in their performance, and you don't have, so that's, there's sort of a, a, a superficial racism there, but then there's no check against it because the producers and the editors and the on-air talent are all white too. There's nobody to sort of correct for that. Uh, there weren't a lot of, you know, national black beat reporters covering uh, sports for the sports illustrated of the world and uh, the sporting news of the world. Now that has changed dramatically. And obviously I think that's a good thing. But there was no corrective there because there weren't any black faces in the production booth. There weren't any black faces on the bylines and there weren't many black faces in the in the in the booth calling the games. And, and Tom, you, you mentioned a, a sort of at least in some ways a wake up call in this regard Two very high profile incidents in the 1980s. First, an interview that the Brooklyn Dodgers executive Al Campanis gave on Nightline to Ted Koppel in 1987 where the yep. question of whether, why there were so few or no non-whites in front offices in Major League Baseball and Al Campanis, you know, famously said, well, maybe they lack the quote necessities and Koppel gives him a chance to back out of that and he doubles down. And then yep. a few months later, Jimmy the Greek, the longtime uh, sort of- uh, Handicapper, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Handicapper who was on a big football pregame show uh, gets yeah, CBS. these ridiculous ideas about uh, how slave breeding led to great black athletes today. But but it took that egregiousness for people to even start to ask questions, I think, as about what you're describing, which is this dominant white media covering these these black athletes and and black participants in sports. Yeah, those were two pretty unfortunate incidents. And, you know, by today's standards, at least they were fired. You know, it's surprising that they were when I, you know, when you think about it today, I, I would think they would get fired immediately, but then there would be a GoFundMe page for both of them. And there would be a whole giant cancel culture uh, defense uh, sort of pushback against their firing for expressing their First Amendment views, uh, not that they work for the government, right? They work for uh, in the private sector and private sector employees can hire and fire whomever they want, of course. So I, you know, I think that was the thing about that era is, and I, and I don't know, maybe I don't talk about this enough. I talk a little bit about the notion of white Davids and black Goliaths, right? Like the classical rooting interest is always to root for the little guy, right? To root for the underdog, root for the team that went three and 20 last year, root for the shorter team, the smaller team. And that's, I don't know if that's, I don't think that's a uniquely American thing, but I think as Americans, we like underdogs. And what's interesting about sports as they transition from the post-war period into the seventies and eighties and nineties is that suddenly the whites are underdogs. And so you have the racial dynamic overlaid with the traditional and you have to sort of, if you're white America, right, you're rooting for the Celtics because the Celtics were, a dominant team, of course, in the 60s and into the early 70s, but they had really seen their fortunes fall until Bird came in the 70s and the 80s. And suddenly it's like you're rooting for the white guy because the white guy is the underdog in basketball in a league that's now majority black. And I talk about that in the context of the Magic Bird game. I talk about it in sort of, you know, Penn State against Miami sort of games is that 
athletics is the one realm where it looks like, okay, African-Americans by every socioeconomic measure, health metrics and so forth, have a far worse life, higher unemployment rates, last to hire, first to fire, policing, you name it. They're clearly the underdogs in American society in every single realm, except uh oh, sports here. And so it made it more powerful for some whites, I think, and racist whites, frankly, to say, oh, we're the underdogs now and let's let's take on the black Goliath here. And it made it easier, I think, to racialize rooting interest. Because one of the things I point out there is like, if you're an African-American in the 1970s, the probability that you went to some major state university with a division one football or basketball probably is pretty low, right? So what's your rooting interest? What is your rooting interest other than racial solidarity to root for a team, unless maybe you grew up in Lansing, Michigan, and you root for the Spartans because you, everybody in the neighborhood root for the Spartans. You know, most, many of the land grant colleges like Ann Arbor are away from the cities and things like that, from the major cities like Detroit. So it's not like your hometown team. You might as well root for the Tigers, right? And the Lions, your local teams, if you're an African-American who grew up in Detroit. Why should you root for Michigan? Why should you root for Michigan State? But now Magic Bur Magic Johnson's on Michigan State, and you're rooting from him even though you've never been to a tailgate party. You're not on the booster roster. You're not getting some alumni newsletter. You're, you and your kids and or you and your father and your grandfather aren't all Spartan alumni, but you're rooting for them. You know, it's much like the story that has been recounted in documentaries where African-Americans in Alabama are rooting for USC against Alabama because they've got black players on the team and, and Bear Bryant has an all-white team, right? Even though they're rooting for a team that's 2,500 miles away from them in USC, right? You have African-Americans in South Central LA rooting for Georgetown, which they think is a historically black college, even though it's a white Catholic college, right? I think the racial transformation of rosters and coaching and eventually general managers and collegiate sports creates a, uh, you know, a racially motivated for negative reasons and for beneficial reasons, a racial interest for African-Americans with no connections to these universities, right? Everybody who went to Penn State roots for Penn State, of course. All right. There's natural rivalries. I root for Carolina. I went to Carolina. Sure. But what's your rooting interest when not you and anybody in your family ever went to that university? Well, I love Michael Jordan. End of story, right? Is it the 80s where we see this phenomenon the most, the racialization of the team and people choosing sides in sports based on you know, I, I know your book's not about the 90s and not about the con con contemporary era, but I guess I'm asking both both you and Jonathan. I mean, do you think it's the 80s where we see this phenomenon the most? I mean, I can't prove it um, because I, there's no real data there. But I, I, I note that in by 2015, like the viewership for the college football players uh, football playoff and the viewership for the NCAA March Madness or the Final Four component is about 14 percent African-American, which is parallel to what it was. Uh, what their population is and what their college graduation rates are, as I point out in the book, whereas I don't have the data, but I can't imagine that the viewership when CCNY in the 50s or, you know, even when the uh, the Haskins team is playing at Texas, um, Texas Western, now Texas El Paso, puts the first black uh, starting lineup against Kentucky and beats Pat Riley and that team. Even that game, I can't imagine that the proportion of African-American viewers following the NCAA tournament back in the 50s and 60s was proportionate to their share of the population. I, I can't prove that because there's no data for that. But I think the, my point is like the 80s was open, you know, sort of opened the door for this trans transformation. Tom, another piece of that I, I just want to just hear you talk about more is I loved your, this book is in part a really good pithy urban history of both Washington DC and Miami. And these two private 
white schools, as you point out, you, you have a chapter called Unlikely Incubators, very improbably become right. the homes of these iconic black programs. And, and, and so one thing I was thinking about, and I just wanna hear you talk more about it is, so these are cities where there's very substantial minority populations who have no meaningful connections to these schools. They're very unlikely to have attended them. Um, and these schools in some ways represent all of the sort of pernicious sort of manifestations of segregation that existed in these cities. And then they develop these programs that become the most popular programs for black people locally and in the United States. So there's just a fascinating urban racial dynamic to these, to the story you tell. I just would love to hear you kind of riff on that a little Yeah, in some ways chapter three is the chapter I'm most proud about because it's the chapter that has the least sports in it. Maybe I just was going back to being a social scientist more in that chapter, which I'm trained to be. And I was like, I, I need to understand a little bit about these universities and these cities. And I live in one of them and I was born in the other one, Miami, but I moved out when I was so young, I was two years old. I don't really have any you know, experience that I can remember from being born in Miami where my parents uh, met and got married and had me and my sister. But um, you know, the, the fascinating to me, I write a lot about the riots, as you know, John, I write about the 68 riots here, which were not just in Washington after MLK's assassination, uh, but were particularly pronounced and LBJ had to roll out 15,000, you know, National Guard troops to quell the riots here, uh, which sort of happened in three centers, one of which is uh, Clifton and, and 14th Street, and I live on Fairmont and 13th Street. I live three blocks from where a supermarket was basically burned to the ground. And today it's all, you know, Whole Foods and things like that. But, you know, the intersection of 14th and U, which is three or four blocks from where I'm speaking to you right now, was ground zero for Black Political Washington. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had an office there. The NAACP had an office. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, you know, MLK's organization, they all had their offices. So it was sort of like the Black political corner, literally, in D.C. And uh, fast forward to, you know, November 2008, you had to coordinate, the city had to cordon off 14th and U because there was a massive celebration with the election of the first Black president in, like, literally right where the riots were 40 years earlier in 1968. In Miami, the big riots came later. They came in 1980 after this um, 33-year-old African-American named Arthur McDuffie was riding his motorcycle late at night and the police just didn't like a black guy George riding through their city. And 14 police officers pulled him over. They beat him to within inches of his death. He died four days later. He was apparently beaten with some uh, pipe or something. They backed up over his motorcycle and to try to make it look like he had gotten in an accident and his helmet came off and that explained all his head injuries. And Janet Reno, the state's attorney, prosecuted that case. They had to move it to Tampa to try to get an impartial jury uh, this was going on in Miami, his trial. And when the verdict was announced in Tampa, the writing began immediately. And it was really, really violent, um, really, really violent uh, protests there. And as I point out from some scholars, it was different than the property riots that followed the King riots because uh, black Americans were pulling white Americans out of cars and beating them to death. It was physical violence against white people in a way that most of the rioting and looting, looting in, the, in the King riots was in their own neighborhoods, looting their own uh, you know, businesses and so forth. And uh, that was a vicious, sometimes called the Liberty City riots, the Miami riots in 1980. So these are two cities that had, you know, very tense, you know, racial relations going well back before the 60s, of course, uh, but were sort of heightened in this period of between 19, you know, late 60s and the, and, and the 
cusp of the 1980s. And then I talk about the universities themselves, which you know had their own issues with racial integration. Miami didn't start in integrating its courses until the late 1950s. Uh, the integrated courses had to be held off the physical campus. They were taught at high schools and local community colleges. So it was, you were technically matriculated at Miami, but you weren't physically on the campus. And um, I talk about the racial integration in Georgetown. Bill Clinton uh, was part of that movement. And um, you know the May Day riots that followed the Vietnam protests in 71. And, and and how, how John Thompson's hire was designed to try to begin to move Georgetown into being part of the city in which it was located. Because Georgetown, if you know DC, is not just in the Northwest Quadrant, which is the whitest and most affluent quadrant. I live in it right now. They're in the Northwest corner of the Northwest Quadrant, up on a hill. So they're like physically removed from the rest of the city. And the president at the time is like, we need to be part of this city. We're like cuckoo's nests removed from the rest of the city. And so if it wasn't hard enough, <laughs> for John Thompson to come in and revive a program that went three and 23 the year before he got there. He not only had to revive the performance of the program, he was considered like this keystone to unlocking Georgetown's transformation and integration in 1972. I mean, talk about the pressure on a young guy who at the time was whatever, 36, 37 years old. I don't know how he did it, honestly. Just a very quick interjection, Tom. And, and, and you mentioned this, it was sort of astonishingly farsighted of the Georgetown leadership to have hired yeah. Thompson in 1972. I mean, he had been a high school coach. There'd been, you know, and I mean, given the circumstances that you just described that they actually thought they needed to do that is kind of amazing at that time. It was, I mean, he wasn't the only black finalist. George Raveling was also considered for the job and uh, Morgan Wooten, who's up at DeMatho, who is his, his competitor. They used to actually avoid playing each other because uh, Morgan Wooten and John Thompson apparently hated each other. And so there were oftentimes they would try to get the two teams in a holiday tournament and hope that they would, you know, win their first round games and then they would play for the championship, but they would avoid each other. And there was a pretty stark rivalry between the two of them. But the thing about Georgetown was the, the administration, they put together a committee, a search committee, and the search committee realized like, we want to try to duplicate what Lefty Drysdale is doing up the road in College Park. And one of the things I write about and sort of goes back to this thing about where's the black rooting interest is that Washington, you know, is a majority black city at the time. It no longer is, actually. It said flipped, I think, in the 70 census, but was a, a majority black city until the mid or late 60s. And the most notable teams were the Baltimore Bullets at the time, or the Capitol Bullets, who were actually playing outside the city. And then the most popular or powerful or biggest draw among college teams was was University of Maryland College Park, which is right on the DC line in College Park, but technically isn't a city team. And so Georgetown, when John Thompson comes along, actually gives African-Americans in Washington, DC, a team that's really a home team that they can root for. Now, of course, the Washington Bullets, now Wizards, eventually do move to downtown Washington and that changes. But at the time, weirdly, when John Thompson is hired, there is no real black rooting interest team at the college or pro level physically in Washington. And Tom uh, Thompson faced a lot of pushback, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of racism from, from uh, I'm not sure there, there's the famous story where the, where the, where the banner is unfurled. Does, does, does Thompson ever win over white DC? I don't know. I mean, I didn't move to the city until, uh, 2000. Um, I, I, I took the job in Baltimore in 1998, and then I got married and moved to the city because my wife lived and worked here. So I, I can't speak to whether John Thompson went over the city because he was already gone by then. 
I mean, I think he won over the university committee community. I think that's fair. I think he won over Georgetown alumni and fans because he won. I mean, it would, it would have been much harder if he had lost. He wouldn't have been around long. I mean, the pressure on him to win, I think, was pretty intense. Um, and he was validated pretty early on by outside validators, people like Dean Smith. I think Dean Smith choosing John Thompson after just four years at Georgetown to be the first ever black coach on the Olympic team is an external validator from a guy who is at that point already a paragon of college basketball, even though Dean Smith at that point hadn't won his own first national championship, of course, until 1982. Right. But, um, you know, you win over people oftentimes by winning. And I think people began to gravitate toward Thompson's style, even if grudgingly once he won. And there are a bunch of stories I put in the book about boosters calling up saying, I don't appreciate the team in the early years before he, they started making the tournament annually. Um, you know, the, I won't repeat the language or that was on this banner. I won't repeat the language from the little old white lady who called Thompson's office and told him, you know, we need to get this coach out of the office. So uh, initially I think the notion was a shock to people that you had a black coach. Actually, John Thompson started five black freshmen his first year, something I discovered. So the fab five, no offense, John uh, was not the first all five black freshmen starting team in division one. They weren't as good a team, obviously. Um, they were mostly guys that had played for Thompson or played against the Thompson in high school the year before. Um, he sort of recruited who he knew basically. But um, those teams, I think, were a shock to the probably the, the Georgetown undergraduates and to the faculty and staff and certainly to the boosters and supporters. Uh, but by the time they start making the tournaments in the late 70s, then suddenly attitudes change. So did he win over white, white Washington overall? I, it's hard to say, but he certainly, I think, won over white Georgetown. Well, and, and, and to your point there about Jonathan's team, the uh, Michigan, I mean, my understanding is when, when, when Michigan is doing what they're, they're doing with, with C Webb and Jalen Rose, there were a lot of alums who actually didn't really appreciate the brand of basketball. The, uh, winning doesn't always win, win, win people over, but Tom, there's a question that I just am dying to ask you. Um, you have a, have, have a line in your discussion of, of Georgetown where you say that not every criticism of Georgetown was about race. Um, and I think that's probably true and probably fair, but with a team like Georgetown, where it's just so hard to look at them without thinking about race, like everything about them is about race. How did you parse the criticisms that, you know, if it's not about race, we might say that it's a semi-legitimate criticism. If it's about race, then there's something else going on. How do you differentiate be, between those? I think the Big East by, by by the late 80s has developed a reputation that it had for a very long time until it sort of fell apart of being one of the, if not the most physical conferences, like the, the level, the type of play, the refs let things go a little bit. It, you know, you better put your big boy socks on, so to speak, if you're coming in from another conference. It just had that reputation. And Georgetown wasn't the only team that played physical. Those Syracuse and St. John's teams, later those Villanova teams, they played physically too. But I think Georgetown was viewed as the, as the sort of the primary mover in that. And their physical and intimidating style forced the other teams to say, well, you know, you're going to come up the middle. We're going to hack you too. We'll take the foul, but you're not going to get any layups or any dunks on us either. And, you know, I'm not saying that Georgetown created that. Maybe they were a spur, and I'm not saying the Big East is the only physical conference, but the criticism of Georgetown in that sense can't be racial is the point, right? It's because the other teams are doing it too. There's not something in, in endemically physical about black people versus white people. Uh, some of the white athletes are just as 
physical and dirty. I mean, I make points about how Kevin McHale and those 86 Celtics that beat up the Lakers or the 84 Lake, they didn't get called thugs, right? Even though they were trying to start fights with James Worthy and, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who were pretty passive players. They weren't noted as dirty, physical, Dennis Rodman-style players, right? But the Celtics were, right? They they sent guys in, Greg Kite and stuff, to goon it up, right? But when white guys do it, it's treated a little different. And so – you know, some of those criticisms were just saying Georgetown plays a physical style play. I don't, I don't reflexively say that's racial. I think um, that was just their part of their style and uh, they weren't the only team doing it and they weren't, it wasn't just black players doing it. I think that whole conference developed a reputation for being a little bit brusque, a little bit hard, edgy elbows. And I don't think that's racial. I, you know, you could even say it's kind of a New York city, Northeast sort of uh, quarter, a new England style thing, guys from Boston, Philly, and New York bring in, you know, the urban uh, street tough, call your own foul style and putting it, in, you know, in uniforms and prime time and, and turning on the television cameras and turning on the lights and bringing East coast city basketball uh, to, to a conference. Well, that's like our, our uh, podcast, Jonathan's the, the uh, tough nose, hard nose, you know, yeah, right. nine five guy. Yeah. And I'm just all wind chimes and the uh, sand be, be, between my toes <laughs> being from, from California. You try to take the charge and, and, uh, and Jonathan tries to posterize you. Is that, is yeah, that what it right. is? Matt's Northern California and I'm New York city. So it, 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 yeah, it, yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> that um, just one more thing for me. I'm just thinking about your comment about the neighborhood that you, you live in now that was ground zero for the riots in 1968. Now there's a Whole Foods. And just the, the gentrification of urban spaces throughout the United States. And I'm thinking about the gentrification of college athletics. Um, yeah. Maybe not just college athletics, but professional athletics too, that these two programs in the 1980s were so, they didn't care what other people thought of them. These were, I mean, they became media sensations. They ushered in new styles of music and all the things you talk about in the book, but they, they didn't do that in order to cultivate a mass market following. And, I, and, and, as, and so when I think about how, the, how distinctive those programs were and the personality they have, it makes me feel like every program now is just Whole Foods. And, uh, and like, there's no, there's no personality anymore. I mean, whatever fans care about their teams, but maybe it's the reverse though, Jonathan, maybe every program has now adopted. I sort of argue the, the yeah. black style that we don't even notice it anymore. Right. Yeah. And I talk yeah. about Brian Bosworth in the book for a particular reason, yeah. right? Cause yeah. there's a long history of white appropriation of black culture, right? Elvis sounded black, but he was white. Madonna, I remember the first time I heard a Madonna song, I was a freshman in college and I, I thought she was a black singer, right? She sounded black, but she's white. Justin Timberlake. I could go just, I could go on and on here. Right. Uh-huh. And I think Brian Bosworth, like he was flaunting the NCAA writing stuff, cutting his hair and then there were all these white kids from rural america with the streaks and the and the, and the sort of a high fade almost like a black a white version of the high fade and then yeah. painting the lines in and he flaunted convention and and he talked crap you know and he essentially was appropriating the black georgetown miami style and look how popular it made him right brian bosworth was a great college player 
not a great pro player, but he was a genius marketer, right? He famously, when he got, you know, bashed the boss t-shirts sold, uh, you know, at, at every visiting arena when he went, right? Didn't he play for the Seahawks and he would go in and play the Raiders and he was selling the anti-boss t-shirts. He was the guy who owned the t-shirts attacking him. And so there was a certain value for being the bad guy. Like somebody has got to be Darth Vader, right? It's, and as I argue in this book, these two programs were the Darth Vaders of college football and college basketball, respectively. They were the programs that you showed up to root against. They were the programs that you showed to root up against. And the fact that that would have been true if they were dominant programs, and there was no racial element, but it adds another layer when the Goliath is not just the bigger expected to win physically dominated, but Goliath is black too. And I think that's a big part of it. There's just no way it's not. Well, so uh, switching gears just a little bit, I know we've, we've been uh, monopolizing your, your time, but I'm thinking of you, you mentioned Tom, all those great NCAA games in the early 1980s. And the one that stands out to me for it, in my mind, and and this is, I'm just talking about as a, I was a white kid and I was 14 years old at the time, 15 years old at the time, Goliath against Goliath was that 84 final between Georgetown yeah. and Houston. And in my yeah. mind, looking back out of it, that's gotta be, I'm going to racialize it, the blackest NCAA game ever, right? I mean, you had two programs. At that point, yeah. Yeah, at, yeah. At, at, at that point, could you, and you actually don't talk too much about that game in your book. Um, could you t talk a little bit about your thoughts about it? And I really like how you make this distinction about different types of black styles, right? Miami and Georgetown, yeah. they didn't have the same style. Those two teams did not have the same style either. No, they didn't. And, and strangely, like Georgetown was the more traditional team. Like they emphasized defense, right? Whereas Houston was the run and gun. They were the predecessors to the UNL, UNLV style. And I think Houston maybe had one starter, but basically the starting, I'd have to go back and look. I think the starting lineups at the opening tip were nine African-Americans and one white uh, Cougar player. And unfortunately it was turned out to be a disappointment because it was toted as this, you know, Elijah Wan versus Ewing, this sort of twin tower matchup. And they both got in foul trouble and they didn't have their best games because they spent a lot of time on the bench and other people starred in those games. But yeah, I mean, when you look back, if you look at the lineups of those two teams and you don't know what you know today, you probably pick Houston to win that game, right? And they had just fallen on, you know, to a huge upset. So they were maybe as motivated. I mean, both teams in the previous two years, Georgetown had its heart broken in 82 and Houston had its heart broken in 83. So these were two teams trying to pull themselves back together. And only one of them could win, of course, and Georgetown both, did. Both and so it was a big, by the way. Both by North Carolina schools. That's right. Yeah. And so I think it, in some ways it was anti-comatic in that regard. But yeah, I mean, I think we'd have to double check, but, you know, that might have been the most black starters in an NCAA championship game to that point, of course, to that point. I'm, I'm not sure. I didn't double check that, but that's a fascinating point that you make about that. Um, and I don't know, maybe people noticed it. Maybe people didn't. I mean, I think the the revolution happened pretty quickly in a way that people became acculturated to the notion of maybe not so much the black coach, but all black starting lineups are nearly all black starting lineups. Right. And um, I can't remember in NC state. No, they, I think they had one white starter right in the championship game in, in 83. So there was probably two white starters between Houston and NC state a year earlier. Uh, and we've had all five black starters on teams going all the way back to Texas Western, of course, in 1966, but that was kind of a one-off. Um, and then we returned to sort of, you know, three and one, three and two, four and one. So, yeah, I mean, that, that game can certainly be remembered for that. I remember for just the sheer star power on the court, 
that day. And the fact it was, um, you know, it was kind of a Georgetown kept the lead the whole second half. It wasn't an exciting finish. Right. Like, you know, the, the, the dunk at the end of 83 or Jordan shot and the Fred Brown turnover in 80 in 82 or the miraculous second half of Villanova in 85. So it was, it was, wasn't, it was maybe the least exciting of those games, actually the 79 final, you know, NC state or yeah, uh, Michigan state had a pretty comfortable lead over bird the whole second half bird had one of his worst collegiate games. So, you know, there's star power there, but the game itself wasn't that great. I put the 84 game in there with the 79 game. Um, But um, yeah, I think, to me, that's the golden era. I don't think that'll ever change, at least in my view. And of course, you would see the same stars come back because guys didn't want and weren't one and done. You know, as I argue in the book, Ewing probably had the second best four four year college basketball career in history, other than Christian Leitner, because the Waltons and the Alcinders only got three years. And now guys are Carmelo Anthony, right? They come, they win the national championship, and they turn pro. I mean, name me somebody that's had a four year career at a major school that since since Leitner and Ewing. I can't think of anybody. When you didn't right? say Alcindor, I almost had a heart attack. But of course, yeah, you're yeah. you're right. I mean, I, I think you can it make the argument even as a freshman when he beat the uh, the uh, national champions by a twenty in the inter squad game. But yeah, that's right. absolutely right. Now we will we will never see Elijah one against Ewing in in college basketball anymore. There's just right. two dollars out there for those guys. And Elijah one, did he come out after his junior year? I think he did. He did right? He, did. he didn't stay he did for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So even Elijah, who went to two championship games, you can't put him in that bundle, and he didn't win either and, of those. And, and, and Jordan, of course, and Jordan came ahead. out after his junior year, also. So yeah, yeah, Jordan came out after his junior year, and Ewing could have won it three times, right? Except for the Fred Brown turnover, and except yeah. for the miracle ninety percent from the field shooting half for Villanova, <laughs> they could have easily won three championships in four years, and Ewing would then have a title that I argue. Pains me to argue it that Christian Leitner holds having gone to four final fours, three finals, and won it the last two years. Christian Leitner arguably has the greatest four year collegiate basketball career in Division One, I, I, but Ewing's second in my view. Well, hold on. Okay. I realize we have an expert in the house now, Tom. So um, there are two, there are a couple of Patrick Ewing stories that I'm really familiar with. I mean, well, one of them is when he's at Villanova and he's introduced. And the oh my god, the words that 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 the Villanova students use, the banana right. peels that that they throw out. And I always, you know, wonder to myself, wow, how did it feel to lose the Villanova uh in that in that game in 85? But there's a story around here, and I don't know if you know anything about this, that Patrick Ewing was very seriously thinking, and you're being a UNC guy too. Patrick Ewing was very seriously thinking about coming to, to UNC and That's playing right. for Dean Smith. And think about what that team would have been like had Patrick Ewing been, oh been on the been on the team um and that the 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 weekend that he's here for a visit that there's a clan march right down the middle of uh, franklin street this is a story that i've heard do you know if that's true I, I i don't know i know that patrick ewing did interview there because i knew a lot of people and i covered sports at carolina and i'd heard that from people who knew dean smith directly there's no and there's no question that and i think it was it was announced that carolina was on the short list i don't know how his visit went i don't know what made him decide to go to Georgetown, which is a leap of faith, right? If you think about it, Georgetown had made the made the tournament in 79, the year before Ewing started there. I think they missed it in 80. I, my memory eludes me. So they weren't like, it wasn't like Ewing went there in 72, 73 when Thompson just got there and they weren't right. even making the tournament. 
So it wasn't that big of a leap of faith, but it was a big leap of faith for Ewing who could have gone at any school he wanted. He was the number one player in the country without doubt. He could have gone anywhere he wanted and he chose Georgetown and he changed that program forever. Just on that story, Matt, before we wrap up, I'm pretty sure that in Thompson's autobiography, I came as a shadow. He refers to Ewing's visit to Chapel Hill. Okay, maybe that's and, where. And mentions and mentions what I don't know if he mentioned a Klan rally, but the Ewing was very uncomfortable the weekend he came to Chapel Hill. I'm pretty sure that Thompson himself talked about that in in his. In the, yeah, I may have missed that. Yeah, you know, and Ewing, you know, he he went to school in Boston. So maybe he felt a little bit out of sorts in the South in the way that, you know, a James sure. Worthy who grew up in North Carolina maybe felt more comfortable. Um, you know, there's a sad quote in there from John Thompson where to, to, to go to the point about the bananas and the Ewing can't read this and all the other racial epithets that were thrown at Ewing and others. Um, at one point in his freshman year, John Thompson came up to Patrick Ewing on the plane and said, how are you holding up with all this stuff? And he's like, you know, at this point I'm used to it. And that just sort of, that just broke, broke Thompson's heart. Like yeah. he'd become almost inured to it because it was so pervasive, which is, which is just sad. You know, it's just sad. Well, Tom, on that note, we will wrap up. This was awesome. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for, joining us. thanks for hosting me, Matt and John. I really appreciate it. And uh, you got to send me some syllabi, Matt. Uh, okay, sure. I will do that. And Jonathan, you got to say the the title of the book again for for, yeah. for people yeah. who, yeah. who want to get why, this. Why don't we let well let's let Tom go and then we'll 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 wrap up. All right, sounds good. I'll I'll send you the syllabus. Bye, Tom. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks so much. Tom. Good to see you. All right. Yeah, that was awesome, Jonathan. So just as a reminder, the name of Tom's book is Common Enemies. It's an awesome book, and uh, we just want to thank Tom again for joining us for a fascinating discussion today. Uh, this has been another episode of Agony of Defeat podcast, and you can find us on Spotify and SoundCloud and iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. And we will look forward to another episode soon.